Hello, and thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science. So glad you could join us again this week. Coming up on episode 295, new research has suggested that coronal loops, you know, the plasma loops that you see blasting off the surface of the sun, aren't real. They don't exist. That is fascinating. We'll look into that. And large organic molecules have been found in planet-forming disks or a planet-forming disk. And we're going to answer a few audience questions today uh, about the sun's orbit, uh, about Uranus, and we've got a, a really fabulous question which I have not previewed with Fred because I want to surprise him. <laughs> uh, basically, the question is uh, black hole-related, but I, I think it's something we haven't actually touched on much before. So we'll get into that very, very soon here on Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Nice to meet you, Mr. Host. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Have you managed to stay dry in Sydney? Oh, no, no. Oh. Uh, uh, we've had the most extraordinary weather. Um, it's been raining for, for days and days, uh, but yesterday was a humdinger. It just absolutely poured down all day. Um, we recorded 117 millimetres from 8.30 to 4.30 in the afternoon, 8.30 wow. in the morning. And um, so um, we've got a kind of granny flat downstairs, um, which sits under, we've got a sort of terrace in front of the house, and the granny flat sits underneath that because the whole place is built on a hillside, a uh, succession of rock ledges. And the, the um, yeah, the, the, the water came down the rock ledge underneath the terrace and flooded the granny flat. But fortunately, not to any great depth because uh, the granny flat has a bathroom with a drain in the floor. So there's this nice river going through the granny flat. Um, we, it's a place that, has, you know, we, as you know, Andrew, we, we only moved here six months ago and um, we always knew we were going to have to re renovate the granny flat. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so well, there's no, yeah. no granny in it. Unfortunately, it's got a, a slate floor, um, so there's no carpets or anything. So it's, Wow, it's, that was lucky. Just, yeah. So it's a, it's painful and there'll be a lot of work to do, but it's, I don't think it's um, destroyed the fabric of the house or anything like that. But oh, look, I think, there, there are um, other people who are far worse. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I think you've uh, got away with it much better pretty, than pretty many, lively, many. Yes, I mean, right. the, the number of homeless people as a consequence yeah. of the floods in Queensland and northern rivers um just down dreadful. around uh, parts of sydney it's just been dreadful uh they they were saying it's the wettest start to a year ever recorded in sydney since records began in the late 1800s and the biggest flood they've ever had in lismore since uh records began mm. and looking at my hometown where the hunter river flows it's right up to the edge of the south bank yes and it has not been in the cbd since 1955, so let's hope that stays out. Uh, the good news is that that East Coast low has moved offshore, so fingers crossed that that's the end of it, but um, it won't take much more rain to tip over a few more rivers. It's been dreadful. Absolutely that's Ma dreadful. Maitland, is it? Where, yeah, where Maitland's my hometown. Yeah. That's right. I I mm, and hello to everyone in Maitland that listens, yeah. Mum and Dad, basically. Um, <laughs> 
All right. Have a nice day, dude. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get down to business. And uh, new research has suggested that coronal loops blasting off the surface of the sun are an optical illusion. This is a fascinating story and we, we you know, we're so close to the sun you'd think oh we've got it all figured out we know everything but you know, we're talking about those plasma bursts that sort of blast off the surface and then they loop back down and they make these beautiful arcs but apparently they uh, according to this research and it's not absolute but they've been doing some modeling not real how so um I, th- I think the research is that not all of them are real i think um i think it's i think there's a bit of a lot of uncertainty here but yeah. it does emphasize andrew just how much we rely on the way things look in astronomy uh and then try and figure out what's what's really really happening um and I don't know. I, you know, when I look at a coronal loop, I think that the normal explanation works really well, and yep. that is that. Uh, and you know, there's actually probably we could point people to the SciTech Daily website, where there's a lovely picture uh, from one of NASA's spacecraft of a coronal loop uh, or a, a set of coronal loops. And what they do is they they kind of join. Um, sunspot pairs. Our traditional view of sunspots, uh, which we've had since pretty well the invention of the telescope, is little dark patches on the surface of the sun. Uh, that's how they show up uh, in, a, in, a, in a normal telescope. Um, but we now know that they're, they're regions where there's intense magnetic activity. Uh, and so uh, it's been realised that what probably causes sunspots is a it, uh, the darkening comes about because of a reduction in temperature of the surface of the sun. So, and, you know, it's contrasting, I think it goes down by a thousand degrees or something. And when you contrast that with the 5,000 degrees of the sun's surface, it looks dark. Um, but all, uh, as I said, all we see is the dark spots. And we think the reason why they're, they're darker and cooler is because the, um, the, the radiation coming up from Within the sun is blocked by intense magnetic activity within these uh, within these sunspots. Now, today uh, we have the benefit of telescopes on spacecraft which are in orbit around the sun, and um, so we can look at sunspots from the side. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can see them on the sun's limb, and what we see are these loops of plasma uh, joining sunspot pairs. That the Sunspot pairs have opposite polarity, uh, north and south magnetism. And so um, it's just like a bar magnet, almost looks like a bar magnet with a loop of rather than iron filings, uh, as the old science, uh, school science experiment shows. What you've got is these plasma loops joining the, the, the poles of the magnet. And that actually is a perfectly reasonable explanation. And uh, certainly, for you know, when you, when you look at these things, uh, it, it, uh, it's intuitively what you expect that to be. But this is new research that's come uh, mm. from scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in the United States, um, which is based on um, 3D simulations of what's happening within the solar corona, the outer atmosphere of the sun. So this the simulation actually was worked on a few years ago, uh, but um, what 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 has happened is so, so you've got this kind of three D model of the sun's atmosphere, and uh, what you can do is look at it 
in different slices, if I can put it that way. You know, it's a bit like um, t- tomography, you know, medical tomography, where you where you, you you've got lots of different slices through somebody's body, a brain, yeah. for example, or, or, or people's organs. But you're doing the same thing, but it's with the sun's atmosphere. And what they've found is that some of these loops may not be loops, but what are described as wrinkles of bright plasma in the solar atmosphere. Okay. Um, and it's it's apparently, if you imagine sheets of, of brightness, which are kind of folded over themselves, so then you get something that looks like a thin, bright line uh, as this this these plasma sheets, and it, it looks exactly like what the coronal loops look like. Um, they, they actually, this research team have got a name for it. They call it the coronal veil hypothesis. Um, but it actually has uh, big implications. If, if most of these loops that we see are not actually loops, but are wrinkles in, in, the, in the plasma sheets, then uh, what it does is it changes our understanding of the way the sun works mm. uh, because coronal loops have been, you know, they've been built into the uh, our understanding of the theory of the processes going on in the sun. Uh, and, um, you know, the way we, we make measurements of things like the temperature uh, the, uh, of the sun's atmosphere, its density and uh, things of that sort. Um, there is a quote from one of the scientists who was involved uh, with this study. In fact, this is the person who led it. Uh, let me see if I can pronounce her name. Anna Malanushenko. Malanushenko. Uh, she says, I have spent my entire career studying coronal loops. I was excited that this simulation would give me the opportunity to study them in more detail. I never expected this. When I saw the results, my mind exploded. This is an entirely new paradigm of understanding the sun's atmosphere. Um, And so, you know, I I think what these researchers are saying, Andrew, is that not all uh, coronal loops are these um, coronal veils, uh, as they call them, but a a lot of them are. And I think um, one of the things they point out is that we've been deceived in a way, that these coronal loops look so much like what I just mentioned, the way ion filings orientate them, uh, themselves along magnetic fields, yeah. that, that they're, they're just thought to be, uh, that they were naturally assumed to be the same sort of thing, but it, with a plasma rather than with ion filings. However, um, th- th- there's been, you know, there have been um, uh areas in the study of these things that people have not understood because uh, they would – one of the things that has been picked up is that uh, if you think of uh, the iron filings uh, on, a, on a sheet of paper with a magnet underneath it and you, you, the iron filings are tracing out the field lines – when you get away from the poles, the, the field lines spread out. Mm. Um, they get closer together when you get near the poles of the magnet. And the, 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 coronal, loop, the coronal loops don't do that. Um, uh, and you've only to look at a few pictures of them to show that the, 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 the loops themselves, they kind of stay parallel to each other. They don't spread out in the same way as, um, as the iron filings do with a bar magnet. Could, um, could that be some kind of gravitational effect, though? Well, the, you're, you're right that the conditions in the, you know in the atmosphere of the sun are vastly different from on a bit of paper with iron filings yeah. on it. Uh, but, but I think the... Um, yeah, there's, there's, 
a, you know, there is a lot of interest in the idea that these plasma wrinkles might solve some of these issues that have been found because of the coronal loops, if I can put it that way. Mm. Uh, one interesting thing about this uh, announcement is that they're, they're the first ones to say, look, this is not an absolute. This is just based on modelling. There's a lot more that has to be done yes. before we can say for sure that what we've discovered is this, this wrinkle effect. But they seem pretty confident. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's some really some other really nice quotes from uh, Dr. Malinyshenko. Uh, this study reminds us as scientists that we must always question our assumptions, and that sometimes our int intuition can work against us. Uh, and another one talking about what the next steps are to try and investigate how many coronal loops are actually optical illusions. In other words, these wrinkles. Mm. Um, uh, she says, we know that designing such techniques will be extremely challenging, but this study demonstrates that the way we currently interpret the observations of the sun may not be adequate for us to truly understand the physics of our star. Beautifully put. Yes, indeed. Definitely. Yeah. I, I find magnetism uh, fascinating. Yeah. Is, is it something that we are still learning about and trying to understand? Uh, Yes, uh, although I have to say our understanding of it is a lot more complete than it was when I was a lad. Um, with the you know the fact that we we know that magnetism is carried by the photon, the subatomic particle that uh, carries electromagnetism, and and once you've got a quantum theory of a force like magnetism, you've gone a long way to solving some of the problems. Mm. But I suppose what is less well known is how magnetism behaves in extreme environments, which. Um, you know, it go from the atmosphere of the sun to uh, the uh, region around a black hole where we think magnetism actually dominates some of the phenomena that we see in connection with black holes, the idea that jets of material are squirting out from their northern, northern and southern poles. They come about because of extreme magnetism, and I suspect our understanding of those extreme magnetic fields are still not, not as complete as we'd like them to be. We'll get there one day, I'm sure. I hope so, yeah. I hope, mm. so. I hope you and I are still around to talk about it, Andrew. Yeah, well, you never know with astronomy. You never know. That's right. Once in a while, they just throw up a, an answer to a question and you go, oh, it wasn't so difficult. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yeah, that's right. Once in a while. Once in a mm. while, indeed. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a little break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Now, virtual private network is a way of protecting yourself from anybody who would like to get hold of your personal information. And it could be anything. And they've got all sorts of ways of doing it these days by detecting your keystrokes, uh, by uploading Trojans. Uh, there are so many ways to hack you, especially if you're in a public environment where there's free Wi-Fi, it's unencrypted, it's unprotected. And if you're not using a VPN on your laptop or your tablet or your mobile phone or cell phone, if you're in the United States, um, you, you are exposed. And all it takes is somebody nearby hacking into your system and they empty your bank account. Well, you can overcome that with a VPN service and NordVPN has got the best reputation uh, of all the VPNs available in the world at the moment. They are certainly the fastest. Sometimes they offer speeds that are faster than a direct connection through your usual provider. 
Uh, it uh, enables you to, to get around the world without geo-blocking as well. So if there's TV shows you want to watch in other countries, you can do that. There's 24-hour support. Uh, it is really a fantastic service. Now, to take advantage of what is a special offer, we have a special URL, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Now, this is guaranteed. There is no risk in getting this deal. It's 30-day money-back guaranteed. Uh, and uh, just because it's their birthday, they're going to throw in uh, a gift as well if you sign up now. Uh, so if you want to grab this exclusive uh, NordVPN deal, go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code spacenuts to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one month for free plus the bonus gift. Completely risk-free, 30-day money-back guarantee. So the URL again, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code word spacenuts to get NordVPN right now as a spacenuts listener, an exclusive deal for you. Now, back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, uh, before we get to our next topic, uh, a reminder that we are on social media. If you're a social media user, you can go to the official Space Nuts Facebook page because we put a lot of information there, lots of astronomy stories and uh, a really big following as well. But if you want to talk to each other, you can do that through the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Uh, there are uh, well over 3,000 followers there now and I know uh, everybody well not everybody but a lot of people talk to each other on a regular basis and it's a, it's a really good place to uh, to get together and, and talk astronomy and, and space science so check it out space nuts podcast group on Facebook uh, and uh, yeah join and uh, you know get together with like-minded people and post your questions post your pictures lots of people post their uh, astrophotography, which is fantastic. Gee, there's some talented people out there working in their backyards or off the back of their utes or wherever. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Twitter and a couple of others that I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, social media is um, certainly a place where um, lots of people can get together and talk astronomy. Now, Fred, let's get to our next story. This one, too, seems to have been a never-before-seen discovery, that of uh, large organic molecules that have been found in a planet-forming disk. They've never seen that before. No, um, that's right. Uh, and uh, this is a story that comes from uh, our favourite uh, Millimeter wave telescope, Andrew Fang put it that way, uh, from Alma, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array down there in Chile, uh, which looks at um, some of the highest frequencies that radio astronomers have access to, and it's uh, that you know it's at five kilometers high uh, to get it above the water vapor, most of the water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere, which. Uh, Submillimeter telescopes don't like because mm. water spoils the view. So. Uh, what have we got? We've got a story about um, a, a, a star which we know has um, a, a, a planet-forming disk around it. The star has the rather brief name of IRS 48. Uh, it's not one of those long gobbledygook names that we we uh, usually talk about. Um, but it's the very very taxing to work with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, it's uh, it's a it's actually a star in uh, 
southern hemisphere um as you'd expect because alma's looking in the southern hemisphere in Ophiuchus uh, at a distance of 444 light years um and the the the, the, the telescope uh has actually studied this star quite a lot um and and other telescopes have too because the disc has got this um I, can't, I don't know what what to call it. It's described in the European Southern Observatory's press release as a cashew uh, a cashew shaped dust trap um, in the um, in the in the in the protoplanetary disk. So if you imagine this disk of material, uh, there's one bit of it that's shaped like a cashew nut mm-hmm. uh, that's brighter than the rest. I always struggle with that word, Andrew, because my mum always used to call them cashew nuts. And cashew. When I say, when I say that, everybody laughs at me. <laughs> Did you know you can't eat them raw? Uh, yes, they're poisonous or something. Yeah. They're horrible. Yeah, yeah. You've got to roast them. Yeah. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, this dust trap is shaped like uh, probably a roasted uh, uh, cashew nut. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, it's, it, it, it's there because it seems to have a collection of bigger dust particles in it than there are in the rest of the in the rest of the protoplanetary disk and so the suggestion is that somewhere in this region where this so-called dust trap is uh, is perhaps a newly born planet or maybe even a, 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 a so far invisible companion star but um the, the, this cashew nut shaped cloud of stuff going around the star um, has these essentially large dust grains, millimeter size, they're saying, which is huge compared with what you normally find in the disk, protoplanetary disk of a star, which are typically, you know, thousandth of a millimeter across. These right. things are a thousand times bigger than that. Sorry, Andrew, go on. No, carry on. I was just, uh, you know, I was surprised by the size when uh, size when you when you mentioned it. Yeah. So that the, these are, you know, you you expect to see this because that's how planets are made mm. uh, by dust grains sticking together uh, and eventually growing into bigger things. Um, then they become comets or asteroids. Uh, protoplanets, planetesimals are the first stage in planet growth, and then protoplanets, and then planets. So um, this this is clearly a planet factory. Um, but uh, what has struck the scientists and resulted uh, in this paper is uh, that there is, uh, for the first time, a particular molecule has been found, which is a particularly large one. Uh, and that molecule is dimethyl ether, uh, which tells you it's carbon-containing, an organic molecule, and it is seen uh, in in the clouds where stars are being formed. Those nebulae, uh, which are you know the, the the what you might call the birthplaces of stars, we it's been detected there, yeah. but it's never been detected in the disk. And what that suggests is that um, in the sort of cold temperatures of the of the of the uh, planet forming disk away from the star um you've got this stuff dimethyl ether uh, making a sort of ice that coats the dust grains oh. um and so um and um 
what what happens is that the, the particles of dust that are sort of nearer to the star, they essentially release that ice as a uh, as a as a as a gas. It, that process is what we call sublimation, where it goes straight from an ice to a gas. Yeah. And and then those molecules are detectable because that's how Alma sees them when they're in their their gas form. Mm. Um, there's a few nice quotes from uh, from the lead author, uh, who's actually a master student, believe it or not, at Leiden Observatory in the Netherlands, uh, Nashanti Brunken, I think is his name or her name. I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know uh, which way that refers. Uh, I might find out in a minute. Yeah, um, I'm not bailing you out on that one either. No, uh, no. Uh, uh, Nashanti says, from these results, we can learn more about the origin of life on our planet and therefore get a better idea of the potential for life in other planetary systems. It's very exciting to see how these findings fit into the bigger picture. Fabulous quote, actually. Yes. And pretty wise stuff coming from a master's student. Um, there's, uh, there, there was another quote, actually, from Nashanti, which I, which I liked, except it, it's gone. I think this one comes from uh, Nienke van der Marel, another researcher at... Leiden, who says, we are incredibly pleased that we can now start to follow the entire journey of these complex molecules from the clouds that form stars to planet-forming disks and to comets. Hopefully, with more observations, we can get a step closer to understanding the origin of prebiotic molecules in our own solar system. Mm. Uh, so some very nice quotes there from the authors of this paper, showing how um, a discovery like this fits into the big picture because these are, you know, these are building blocks of life. That they're, they're, they're still not living organisms, and they're not even what you might call prebiotic molecules like amino acids and sugars. But they're they're the stepping stones towards those molecules being formed, and they're there in the you know just the disk of stuff that from which planets are made. Yeah. So the suggestion is always going to be. That these molecules, um, you know, the ones that we have <clears throat> around us here on Earth, possibly predate the the solar system. The, the molecules that make up ourselves uh, might contain elements that that were there before the solar system was formed. Is it fair to ask a question as to why it would be found in a planet forming disk when we've never yeah. seen it before? Yeah, I think I think the um, probably the thinking is that yes, you find them in the clouds in which stars are born. But those clouds generally are very, very cold. Mm. And once you start uh, churning up stuff gravitationally so that you've got a, a, a star that is formed by the collapse of gas raising the temperature and causing nuclear fusion to, to start, um, you, you, you might expect the the radiation from that process to destroy the molecules essentially but the molecules have survived and they're in the in the you know the disk around the planet so uh, that's why it's an exciting step that the, the molecules are not destroyed uh, by the by the process of the, the star switching on um which yeah i, I think it, it's really interesting stuff that you know i, I guess 20 years ago would have thought all of these uh, molecules that make up our bodies and ourselves were formed on Earth, mm. uh, that they were all formed in the relatively cool temperatures that we experience here on Earth. But here's evidence that no, they actually uh, exist in the, you know, in the in the, the sort of birthing ground of planets, the um, uh, the protoplanetary disk. It's remarkable, I think, a great yeah. discovery.
Fantastic. And uh, I've just done a bit of uh, social media stalking. Nashanti is from the Caribbean and is female. And, okay. um, yeah, I found her on Instagram. So while we were very, talking. Very, very so nice. Is. Very nice. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for rescuing me from that, Andrew. I, I and apologies, I apologies Nashanti. Yeah, you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> apologies for getting it wrong the first time around. It's terrible that you. Ah, oh, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it can be that, difficult sometimes with people's names. I mean, you really don't know when you see the name Fred and, whether and, it's a female or male. Exactly. Well, it, my 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 younger son used to have a landlady called Fred, so that's right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, when we chose our eldest son's name, it was a it was a predominantly male name, but these days it's a unisex name, Kyle K Y L E. Yes. Yes, that's right. Although he's started his own Facebook um, thing about the number of people that write to him and call him Kylie. It happens um, a lot. Okay. So, yes. Anyway, that's by the by. This yes. is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Uh, now, thanks to our patrons, the people who put their money where our mouths are. I think that's the way it works. Uh, and uh, if you would like to become a patron, jump on our website and uh, click on the supporter button and find out how you can support us. And you can do that through Patreon. You can do it through one-off donations through PayPal, or you can just buy us a cup of coffee, uh, which someone actually did literally, uh, the Parisian Panda. Uh, thank you. And Fred's got a cup of coffee as I speak. But, yes, uh, we, we do appreciate your support, and we've got a lot of supporters through the various platforms, and, and we thank you for that. Now, Fred, uh, time to try and answer some questions. And our first question today comes from Andrew in Victoria. Hi, Fred and Andrew. It's Andrew Dixon from um, Glenroy in Victoria. Uh, my question is, does the sun have a predictable orbit around the galactic centre? And if so, does this have any effect on Earth, such as climate or habitability? Thanks, guys. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely to hear from you as I knock everything off my desk. Uh, so, um, yes, does it have a predictable orbit, etc.? cetera? Um, it, it does. Well, it's got an orbit, certainly around the galactic centre. It takes roughly 200 million years, a bit more than that, I think, is the current estimate, to go around once. 200 million years is... A, you know, it's a thoroughly geological timescale. Um, and so what makes it perhaps not predictable is the fact that the sun is just one of maybe 200 billion stars in the galaxy and other massive objects like um, giant molecular clouds, things of this sort, which are places where stars are, are formed. And all of these things are going around the galactic centre. So unlike the solar system where you've got just a few planets whose gravitational influence can be accurately calculated so you can work out the Earth's orbit to a very, very high degree of precision. Um, the Sun's orbit around the galactic centre is not like that because there's so many conflicting gravitational pulls that the details of the orbit would be quite complex. Uh, so, yes, whilst it is in... A, probably a fairly circular orbit around uh, the, the centre of the galaxy because it's part of the disk and disk objects are largely circular in their orbits, that 
And that that means you know it's it in that regard we know that it's roughly circular, but there would be details of the exact mechanisms of the orbit that would be influenced by other stars, by giant molecular clouds, and the like. Um, and just one thing to contrast it: we know that stars in the galaxy's halo and other objects like globular clusters, which are predominantly in the, gal- the galaxy's halo, they move in really quite elliptical orbits. They're elongated orbits, unlike the objects in the disk, which are much more circular in their orbital motion. Have, um, have Has our climate and other aspects of the Earth been influenced by this? Probably in the sense that, you know, we, we, we may have had... Uh, times when uh, the the interaction between the the sun and another passing star might have perturbed the orbits of planets and things of that sort. We we don't know the details of that, but that's one of the possibilities. It's also possible, and this is a theory that actually goes back to two guys I worked with at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh in the 1970s, Victor Klub and Bill Napier, that um, as the sun in its orbit around the galactic centre goes past things like giant molecular clouds and other stars, the gravitational influence of those external objects can disturb the Oort cloud, the sort of spherical reservoir of comets that we have around the sun, Mm. and start tipping comets into the inner solar system. Uh, And they've you know, scientists have looked for sort of periods in the cratering record of planets which might speak of episodic bombardment, where you get an episode of bombardment because we've gone past something that's disturbed the Oort cloud and sent all these comets in our direction. Um, and it, it, that that's still um, a, a, certainly a distinct possibility that that kind of event has affected the Earth, that we might have gone through in the Earth's 4.57 billion year history, we might have gone through periods where there's been bombardment caused by the Sun's interaction with other objects near its orbit around the galactic centre. Wow. Long answer to a short question, but yeah, yeah it's an interesting yeah. one. Great question, though. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely to hear from you. Let's uh, now go to... Uh, uh, well, a semi-regular. Haven't heard from him in a while. It's uh, Rusty in Donnybrook. Hey, guys, it's Rusty in Donnybrook. The moon occults Uranus tonight, and I'm just wondering what we can learn from this that we don't already know about Uranus. I understand these events are fairly rare. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. Mm, okay. So um, what's he actually um, suggesting? Sorry, I've got one playing that shouldn't hold. Get back to that in a minute. Um, yes. Right. Yep. The trials and tribulations of a, a live scenario that I wasn't planning. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, um, Uranus occult. Uh, the, the moon occults I'm, Uranus, yeah. Yes. Um, so it's, what's the story? So the, these things were scientifically important in the era, first of all, when we were trying to refine orbits uh, to, to, you know, to ensure that the orbit of Uranus was well understood. And of course, that, that's got a history going back to the, almost to the discovery of Uranus, because it was through um, wobbles in Uranus's orbit that we found that 
there was a planet called Neptune. Didn't know it was called Neptune, but uh, that, but it was the gravitational influence of Neptune on Uranus's orbit that led to its discovery, and and um, more. Uh, circumstantially, because it, there's no real connection, it led to the discovery of Pluto as well, even though um, Pluto is far too small to have any influence on Uranus's orbit. So um, in those days, when you, you're trying to pick out, you know, to, to determine accurately the orbits of things, um, you you will be interested in an occultation because you've got this instant when you know that the limb of the moon and a planet are in exactly the same direction. Um, and so it pinpoints them. Uh, there was a time as well, <clears throat> excuse me, again, this goes back to my earliest days in astronomy because I was involved with this, where we used to use occultations of stars uh, by the moon to to work out what the geography of the moon was like, especially near its poles, because you could see stars that would, if, if the moon was sort of just kissing the stars, it went past star would appear and disappear and appear and disappear as you saw it through gaps in the mountains near the moon's poles. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was quite important too. Um, but today, um, I think it's more of a, it's a bit like a, an eclipse of the moon. It's a phenomenon that we understand well. And there are things that you can learn from an eclipse of the moon. In fact, you can probably learn more from an eclipse of the moon than you can from, uh, from a, an occultation of Uranus. What's more interesting, sorry to labour the point, Andrew, is if Uranus passes in front of a distant star, so that's an occultation by Uranus of a distant star, because yeah. then the star will fade as it goes behind, as, as its light starts filtering through Uranus's atmosphere. And you can actually observe that light and look at um, some of the chemical elements in the atmosphere of Uranus by noting what, sign what spectral signature is placed on the light by the starlight having passed through the atmosphere of Uranus. So that sort of thing is much more useful. In fact, it's how we discover Pluto had an atmosphere, um, by observing um, an occultation of a star by Pluto. This happened at least a decade ago, um, certainly one of those observations we were, we were involved with at the Anglo-Australian Telescope. So, um, um, yeah. Given how many stars there are that we can observe, uh, are occultations like that common? Yeah, re relatively, although, um, y you know, I mean, it, it depends how bright you can go when you or how faint you can go when you when you're looking at the stars uh, the fainter you go the more stars uh, you can see being occulted but then you've got the problem that um, in the case of a planet the the planet is much much brighter than the star that's being occulted and so mm. it the, the observations get difficult yeah fair enough all right there you go rusty um no but yes <laughs> All right, uh, we'll go to our final question, and I'm, I, I've been saving this one up. Uh, this is going to be uh, a bit of a surprise for Fred because usually we preview the questions together, but I wouldn't let him listen to this one. This is Amelia. Hi, Fred and Andrew. My name is Amelia from Pennsylvania in the United States. I know when some stars die, they turn into black holes, but what happens when back black holes die? I got Fred's book, Space Works for Christmas. I've read up to page 21 so far, and I really like it. Thank you. 
Oh, <laughs> so, so lovely. Yeah, that's yeah. delightful. <laughs> Thanks, Amelia. Uh, great question. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm so glad you're enjoying Fred's book. That's, that's so <laughs> that's nice. <what> my. <laughs> that's mm. fantastic. Should be the first one. <laughs> I, it's first, certainly the first one I've heard from, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Uh, so thank so, you, so good to hear from from younger listeners too. We, yeah. We've got a few, um, but uh, yeah, terrific. Uh, so, what happens when a black hole dies, Fred? Yeah, it's a really good question as well, and we 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 don't really know. Um, we know that if two black holes collide, they just make a bigger black hole. Yeah. Um, so you know they don't wipe each other out or anything like that. You just end up with a bigger black hole. And we also know, and this is probably the real answer to the question, uh, and this is work that was done by Stephen Hawking back, the late, great Stephen Hawking back in the 1970s. We know that black holes evaporate. They don't last forever. Mm. Uh, and we, we, we always assume that nothing can escape from a black hole, but there is this process called Hawking radiation, um, which is a kind of leakage of, actually of, of energy, uh, and it is radiation, it's electromagnetic energy, so it's light and heat, uh, that leaks out very, very slowly from black holes. Um, and eventually a black hole would disappear altogether. It's called black hole evaporation. But the timescales for that are huge. They're much, much longer than the age of the universe. These things, you know, that we believe that these things take a very, very long time uh, to 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 evaporate. So perhaps they do just fade away. They they you know just disappear. They dry up in a in a sense. But um, it's uh, it's a long process, and we might have a long time to wait before we see it happening. Yeah. Oh yeah. I imagine we do have a long <laughs> time to wait. So what would be left when it was gone? Just space. Well, you know, there is there's a people have proposed a theory that when a black hole finally evaporates, what you get left behind is a white hole. Yes, I've heard uh, that one. Yeah, uh, which, which is um, the opposite. You know, it's, a, it's something that nothing can go into, but stuff can come out of. Mm. So uh, as the universe ages and we get more and more evaporating black holes, maybe we'll start to see white holes. We've never seen one. Um, but, um, no, they're just... Theorised at the They're moment. Theorised, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we we have had questions about them in the past, but um, yeah, never been seen. So at this point, they don't exist. They, they are not known to exist. That's the way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> always, always quick to qualify me. Well, you, in Australia, you can't. You know, I mean, gosh, we would have been talking with absolute certainty about coronal loops until this week. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. That's very true. Uh, thanks, Amelia. Thanks for your question and yeah, thanks lovely. for the book endorsement. And I will remind people that if you do have questions uh, and you want to buy Fred's book, you can go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and click on the shop link and you'll find Fred's book in there and all our uh, other um, bits and pieces uh, you can buy shirts. Look, I've got I've got the black one on today. Oh yeah, so, oh, right. yeah. that's rather nice. Yeah, yeah it's nice. This one yeah. I like this. Uh, and uh, yeah, everything else that we've managed to put our logo on is on the Space Nuts shop. Uh, and you can ask your questions through the AMA tab or the Send Us Your Voice Message link on the right hand side. It's pretty easy stuff. SpaceNutsPodcast.com or SpaceNuts.io. Now, little announcement preempting episode 300 we've been taking in your ideas we're considering guests 
but we are looking at doing a live show. We think we've figured out a way of doing it. Uh, we're going to do some tests, but the, the plan is to go live. So we'll let you know when. We will have a special URL that you can log into, and if all goes well, it will automatically link you to us live via your preferred podcast distributor. So leave that one with us, but, yeah, we're, we're hoping to do a live show for episode 300, which should fall sometime around the second week in April, the way my numbers stack up. I thought it was going to fall on my birthday, but it's it's not. It's going to be a bit <laughs> a couple of weeks later than that. But, uh, yes, that's where we're at at the moment with uh, episode 300 because um, it could all fall over and we'll just do a normal one. But <laughs> we'll see what happens. Fred, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Great pleasure, Andrew, as always, too. And uh, looking looking forward to next week and uh, uh, yeah, and to getting to episode 300. That's a bit of a milestone, isn't it? Sure is, yeah. <laughs> many, many milestones. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, I think by the time we get there, there will be uh, a white hole discovered, if I'm not... Maybe so. That would, Wouldn't it be good if we had a big discovery like that to celebrate yeah. in episode 300? Yeah. Would be nice. All right, Fred, thanks very much. We'll see you next week. Take, take care, Andrew. You too. Bye-bye. Stay dry. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and another one that's uh, ringing out his, um, his uh, <laughs> toupee at the moment is Hugh. Uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio for uh, pushing all the right buttons, uh, which I didn't do very much of today. But from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. Look forward to catching up with you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.